Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is part two of your DC Spotlight for the week of August 24th, 2021. Uh, if you haven't checked out the other uh, episode yet, no worries. It's not in any particular order, but we covered half the books from uh, this week in part one, and now we're going to talk about uh, the rest of uh, the books. So uh, it was interesting that as we were winding down on, on episode one, Rocky was saying that he felt like this half had had the better books. I was kind of like, eh, half and half maybe, but you know, I guess we'll I guess we'll see as I'm kind of flipping through to get to the credits page on these ones. I'm like, oh yeah, maybe maybe these all were, with the exception of one I think that really didn't do much for me. Uh, I think that maybe you're right uh, in hindsight. So anyway, let's dive right in. The first book we're going to talk about is Robin number five. It's from writer Joshua Williamson. We have art by Gleb Melkinov. Colors are by Luis Guerrero. And letters are by Troy Petrie, and the uh, the Lazarus tournament is a, is about to start. What do you think of this issue, Rocky? Um, yeah, uh, I'm actually going to uh, <laughs> I'm gonna actually let you start this one off because I've got a I, I just I just actually just, I only got like halfway through it, so I, you can start gotcha. me off on this. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, we saw at the end of last issue. Well, at the, I should say at the beginning of last issue, issue four, Robin had sort of reunited with his grandfather, Ra's al Ghul, who's out uh, on a walkabout almost, out on this island that's apparently close to the, uh, where Lazarus Island is. And uh, they had a little bit of a heart-to-heart. -heart. He was kind of explaining how uh, nothing he's been doing lately has been working, and he's, he's taken this sabbatical, uh, stepped back from the League of uh, Assassins, League of Shadows, whatever you want to call it, and... Uh, he's kind of reassessing the way he does things because he suffered defeat after defeat. And he's looking at Damien, you know, as, as this legacy character, someone who's supposed to carry on his, uh, his name, his mantle. And he's sort of giving Damien advice. Like, you know, don't, don't take things for granted. Don't take things so seriously. Be uh, open to adaptability. You never know what's going to happen. So, it was an interesting dynamic between grandfather and grandson, um, but it, it maybe wasn't as emotionally impactful as as maybe Williamson thought it could be, just based on the fact that these are this is a bad guy. <laughs> this is Raz Al Ghul, you know, like who who's really caring that much about his feelings? So I don't know. I had sort of mixed feelings about it, and, and the Robin title. I the whole reason I picked it up and I talked about this when it first got announced was. For Connor Hawk, and we've gotten very little Connor Hawk, and the Connor Hawk we've had doesn't feel like any Connor Hawk I've ever read about in a DC comic previously. So, that being said, I, I've been continuing to read it, and we saw at the end of last issue, Robin was trying to figure out how to get back to Lazarus Island when all of a sudden all the other members of the Bat family, with the exception of Batman, showed up to confront him and say, "Hey, um, you know, it's it's time for you to." to to come home, basically. They were able to, to track him down because he's been off the grid. He's been missing. Damien has. So, you know, cue this issue with the requisite, uh, what do they call it, Ro rooftop race, yeah. uh, which apparently they haven't had in a, in a long time. So, you know, I I sort of feel like people like uh, Dick Grayson and, and uh, Jason Todd, they should be able to catch Damien. Uh, you know, they have more experience. They've been doing it longer. And, and I know Damien was trained from birth or whatnot. And I guess in a way, Dick does sort of catch him at, at the end and then sort of lets him go. Um, 
But I don't know. This it was in this it was inconsistent. This issue, I felt like the pacing was up and down, and it felt sort of like a fill-in issue. And and again, I go back to the fact that I was picking this up because I wanted to read more about Connor Hawk and Connor. I think shows up for like one or two panels in this issue, and like this is issue five, and the tournament still <laughs> hasn't started yet. Finally, on the last page, uh, we get a big two-page spread saying, you know, next issue, finally we get some fights. So, you know, if anybody's been reading this hoping for like a Mortal Kombat type of feel or a, uh, what's the a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, kick, Kickboxer? Yeah. No, uh, Bloodsport. That's yeah. what it is. Uh, if anybody's been waiting for that, okay, start start with issue six because now we're finally going to get some some battle. So I, I, I am kind of looking forward to that. Maybe it'll get back to the the feel of what we thought it was going to be. And the, and the first issue kind of had that feel, you know, maybe a, an enter the dragon where these people are going on a boat to an Island and there's going to be some big tournament. Uh, and then it's all been build up so far and, and we haven't really gotten much, but I will say in fairness to the creative team that the couple of moments that we have here, one between Damien and Jason Todd and, and another really important one between uh, Dick Grayson and Damien they played pretty well. Um, Damien is still a punk. I still don't really like him. And uh, Rocky and I have talked in the past about how we feel like Joshua Williamson has sort of de-evolved him. He, he was uh, further along as a character in terms of he wasn't as big of a jerk and he seemed to be maturing. And it, and it feels like Joshua Williamson has rolled the clock back a couple of years. Like maybe he didn't bother to read anything that had Damien in it the last couple of years because he seems to have gone backwards in terms of his emotional maturity. But there's a, a cool moment between uh, Dick Grayson and, and Damien, probably the two members of the Bat family, other than Bruce Wayne himself, obviously, who were closest to Alfred. And being that Damien was was there at the moment when Bane snapped Alfred's neck, obviously that's a, it's still a, a, a point of uh, trauma for Damien. And, it, and it, it's kind of weird. Like at some point, you know, they're going to bring Alfred back, but you know, how do they do that and when and, and I still sort of question the idea because it was supposed to be a big fake out, right? The way Tom King wrote it. And then DC editorial goes, no, 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 we like that. We like that you killed Alfred. Let's leave him dead. I still, that decision still baffles me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't understand the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the reasoning behind that. I mean, Alfred's not one of these characters like that drives the narrative of, of the Bat family forward in such a way that, okay, if Alfred's dead, we, you know, we've got this whole treasure trove of, of, you know, stories, this, this new path of stories that we can go down. Um, you can do things like show how it affects Dick Grayson or show how it affects Damien, but it's not like you can build a story around that necessarily. Yeah. Um, and if you do, it's, it's kind of a one note story. Well, here's the story about how Damien's affected by Alfred's death or how Dick is affected by Alfred's death. That's, you know, yeah. it's not like, you know, if you, you know, not that they killed Batman, but when, you know, uh, Batman RIP when Bruce Wayne was sent back through time, you know, that drives the whole corner of the Batman universe, right? You, you can tell all kinds of stories, battle for the cowl and, and, you know, stories about the, the, the villains and, and the power vacuum that's left in Gotham city after Batman leaves. Like there's a lot of stuff there with Batman gone. And, uh, apparently speaking of Batman being gone, it's, um, they're not done with that either, right? Because we've heard about this new event, Shadow of Shadows of the Bat, that's coming later this year. Um, so obviously, they feel they can go back to that well, which is great. You know, that's that's perfectly fine. But Alfred, mm, I don't know that you that you do. But anyway, it's neither here nor there when we're talking about Robin Five. I thought it was an 
okay issue. I still feel like it's inconsistent. The art, I'm glad Gleb Melkinoff is, is back. Not that Jorge Corona's art was bad by any stretch, and it's similar to what Melkinoff does, but Melkinoff is a little a little cleaner. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm in for basically one more issue because I think next issue we're finally going to get uh, what I expected it to be. Like, you can almost skip issues two, three, four, five and just go, like, issue one, they arrive on the island and they get the rules, and now issue six, the fight starts. All this stuff that's come in the meantime, it's been built up for not really any purpose in my mind because I, I don't really feel like it's helped the narrative that much, and it certainly hasn't evolved Damien uh, much unless there's going to be callbacks to his meeting with Ra's al Ghul or something like that. I, I, I don't know. You know, like I said, we, we t- we've talked about how Williamson seems to have rolled the – the uh, maturation of Damien backwards. And so, you know, maybe hopefully by the time the series ends, at least gets him back to the point he was when he picked him up. Um, Cause I'm not really, I don't think DC knows what to do with Damien right now, to be honest with you. Uh, I really don't. So, so anyway, yeah, it was just okay for me. Uh, what'd you think? Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, yeah, I, I needed to refresh my memory, but yeah, it, it's, I agree with you uh, that it's, you know, I, I agree with you that when Alfred was killed uh, by Bane, it, 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 I thought for sure that was going to be an, that, that whole thing was an illusion created by Psycho Pirate in the story. And, uh, <laughs> I still insist in my mind that that would have been the outcome had DC not insisted to leave Alfred dead. And, uh, but having said that, given that it is now an established continuity, Damien, uh, it's not just that Damien witnessed Alfred's death. It is actually largely Damien's fault frankly, that Alfred was killed because it was Damien's impulsiveness that invaded Gotham, invaded Gotham, uh, despite the fact that Bane had a Gotham girl there making sure that no superhumans could invade Gotham. And uh, it was Damien's arrogance that uh, ultimately got Alfred killed. I mean, I, I hate to put it so bluntly, but that is kind of the truth. And that guilt, I'm sure, would rack on a young young boy's brain. I love Nightwing in this issue. You you touched upon the character moments. I won't touch. I won't touch too much on it, other than to say that if anyone can relate to Damien, as Nightwing points out to other members of the Bat family, Damien is younger than we are. He's going through what we've all gone through. Who are we to point fingers? <laughs> Let Damien find his own path. This is Damien's journey. And Nightwing even winks to Damien when he says, Damien, please don't run. But then he winks at Damien and Damien takes off to make his way back to the tournament where ultimately at the end, it doesn't appear to be much of a tournament because when she says, let the tournament, when when the mother says, let, let uh, the the tournament begin, they all just run at toward each other to, to fight. So it doesn't really seem like a structured uh, tournament where they're just going to run at each other and, and kill each other. But in any event, I think that Damien, excuse me, I think writer Joshua Williamson probably needed to do this to get maybe get his own handle on the character a bit. They're probably, I, 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 I took issue last in, in, in Robin, in Robin issue four, when the Bat family showed up at the end, I thought it's kind of a filler. And it, this is kind of a filler issue. On the one hand, it is kind of nice to maybe get a little bit of perspective because, you know, this seems to be sort of a trope that all members of the Bat family goes through. But but Damien is somewhat at odds right now. And he's he's kind of a mixed bag. And he's been pushed and pulled and written in, in well, in different directions, but consistently, he always seems to be kind of the jerk and he always seems to be embracing the darkness and he always seems to be narcissistic, but he's, 
whereas he used to when he was in in earlier issues in Rebirth, D- Damien used to be more. He came across as a more entertaining character, almost sort of lovable, the young narcissist. But as he's getting older now, and he's whatever, however old he is, he seems older. Some of that narcissism comes off, and it's not funny anymore. It's not cute. He's coming across like a jerk. So war- warming him up a little bit, making him a little bit more of a uh, maybe a, a likable character, I think is a good idea. And I think that's what Joshua Williamson has done here. Hopefully this is a softening up of Damien a little bit and makes this a little bit more of a hope-filled narrative. But, but, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. But overall, I, I didn't mind this. I didn't mind this, even though it was a filler issue. Yeah, they've all been... <laughs> I, I, you know... This is a question we've been asking a lot. As much as we sort of appreciate what DC's done, and and it certainly has gotten you know far better than Future State was when we were we were really worried, to be honest, about the quality of the stories. But again, uh, unfortunately, things like Mister Miracle, Source of Freedom, which has been a, a pleasant surprise, too many of the stories and things that DC are are writing or putting out right now is is we're asking the question of what's the point of this. You know, where is this going? Um, you know, it's true of, of Bendis's Justice League. It's true of Batman Catwoman. It's true of Robin. Uh, it's true of Checkmate. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 a little, it's a little frustrating. I mean, I, I don't want to have – obviously, I, I want it to take me in surprising places, but it doesn't feel like there's a point to this story yet. Like, at least give me an idea of – of what the goalpost is. Like, what are you trying to, where are you trying to bring us to? You know, I don't, you don't need to tell me everything that's going to happen along the way. I'll, I'll enjoy that as it's being read. Um, but I don't understand. I don't even understand the point of this book. And then on top of that, we have the winner of the DC round. Speaking of tournaments, we have yeah. the winner of the DC round Robin tournament Robins yeah. by Tim Seeley coming up. That's going to basically have a bunch of the characters that we saw in this rooftop race. All the Robins sort of teaming up. So DC is all Batman and Robins all the time. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there, there were several articles written about it when the November solicits came out because, like, something like fifty-four percent of the books for November either star Batman or or had Batman in the title or were you know Batman family books. I mean that that's insane to me. The amount of Batman, it's just ridiculous. So uh, anyway, on to the next book. Uh, not Batman. But rather, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number two, from writer Tom Taylor. John Timms is the artist. Gabe Eltab is the colorist. Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, I thought this was better than – I mean, after the first issue where I sort of had mixed feelings, I was sort of worried. But, you know, I think I even used the exact phrase in, in Tom Taylor, I trust. And he didn't let me down. I thought the second issue was a big improvement. But uh, but what what were your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Uh I well, you know, one of the one of my biggest complaints last issue wasn't well, or it wasn't a complaint; it was an observation. Is that I really, I said, I really hope they give him a secret identity. I wanted the return of the secret identity, and uh, lo and behold, if that isn't exactly what we got here, or at least an attempt at a secret identity, in the uh, in in the uh, guise of Finn Connors, and it's funny, you know, I mean, this really starts off with uh, John Kent. After he's watching a YouTube channel about asylum seekers fleeing the the island state of Gamora, uh, he he's exploring uh, a new secret identity and uh, going to and attending his first day at Metropolis College. And his new identity is this Finn Connors, 
and um, he has Batman and Oracle pull some strings and go to all this trouble to create this new I- secret identity for him. And of course, he uh, and he and he hops in his uh, 2003 Cord Motors Jeep, which I think is I am assuming I, I didn't know Ted Cord owned a, owned a automobile manufacturer, but I guess Ted Cord does. But uh, so it's some interesting little uh, Easter eggs there, but. Uh, it doesn't go well. I mean, as Finn Connors, he shows up at school and seems a little bit tropey here. Uh, you know, Tom Taylor, you know, I mean, what are the odds on the first day of school? There's literally a school gunman shows up, school shooting. You know, I thought you this know, was... You know, in the U.S., in the U.S., the odds <laughs> yeah. are pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose maybe that's not tropey. You know, I don't know. It's like, yeah. oh, it's like another school shooting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, um, he stopped 67 bullets and, you know... My uh, and and it's interesting that the school gunman uh, wrote wrote the words thoughts and prayers on the bullets that he was going to use to kill all the students. And this is kind of, actually kind of this is kind of this is actually pretty dark, you know, for for yeah. an issue that has its bright spots. This was kind of a darker aspect when you looked at the school shooting, and it was also a little bit disappointing that this is Superman. This new Superman's first day with a secret identity, and I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't find a way to preserve his secret identity. Uh, I mean, how many times did uh, a young Clark Kent uh, have to uh, run off to save the day? And he did. He always managed to salvage his secret identity. And and John Kent loses his on day one. Uh, dare I accuse this young John Kent of being fairly incompetent? He's got super speed. I should I should have thought he would have been able to pull this off. But again. I get it. The whole point of this was to show that they're, they're, you know, that's why I feel say it feels a little bit forced. I think John Kent is actually more competent than this, but I understand why they did it. Um, following this, I mean, uh, he clearly, he, he, he gives up the secret of any of Finn, Finn Connors. It's completely blown. He's now he's suddenly he's popular, but of course he, he's got no choice, but to you know, take his, uh, cord Jeep and just fly off and, there's a beautiful scene here. I mean, the the art in this issue is uh, fantastic. Was it? Is it John Timms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John I mean, Timms. I mean, just fantastic. There's a, uh, I mean, there's a beautiful image of 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 young uh, John Kent with his dad, uh, Kalal, staring at the Earth, and they're just, you know, they're talking about how big the Earth is, and yet how very small it is. And I really like this discussion because this is John Kent holding his dad accountable, saying, Dad, why don't you do more? And he asks him point blank. And it's the question that we've all had of Superman at one point. Why don't you do more? You're always sitting on the sidelines. You're always trying to be so diplomatic. You're not getting involved. I could, I think we could all relate to John Kent's asking his father that question. And, and I actually think... Uh, John Kent doesn't like his dad's answer, and I don't like it either. And John Kent even tells his dad that his answer is idiotic. You know, his father says, I, th- I think part of me holds back because I wasn't born here. I can help, but I can't lead, except by example, which is all a bunch of nonsense. I, I actually don't believe any of that. I, th- I actually think his father is being a little bit of a cop-out, if I'm, if I'm being honest. But you and I did review uh, this, this same week. Superman was proactive in the pages of Action Comics or uh, with uh, between the Atlanteans and the U.S. government when he took the Genesis fragment. So Superman is capable of maybe crossing some lines and putting his foot down when he wants. It's a question of choice. And ultimately, that's what Superman or Kal-El tells his son John here. He says, look, you know, 
it's up to you. You can make different choices. And if you make different choices than I do, I'm going to honor that. And, and he gives his son a gift, takes him to another fortress, uh, the, the, the second fortress in the Arctic Circle in Greenland, the second fortress of solitude. And he bestows upon him sort of like the passing of the torch, uh, another sort of a costume that his, uh, uh, John Kent's grandmother made, and it's just some, some really good character moments that I think necessary dialogue between father and son that I thought I thought really drove things home. And ultimately, while he's while he he takes that with him, uh, John Kent then watches uh, I guess I guess the equivalent of a YouTube program called The Truth, <laughs> where where this uh, where. This this individual who we later hear his name is Jay Nakamura. He's a pink haired YouTuber with a broadcast program called The Truth. And he's broadcasting about uh, asylum seekers who are trying to find refuge uh, in Metropolis. They're trying to make it to Metropolis from from the island nation of Gomorrah, which is uh, controlled and ran by President uh, John Bendix who is the same John Bendix, I think, of uh, Stormwatch and who yeah, created can, Midnighter can. and Apollo. Henry Bendix, right? Henry, Henry Bendix. Bendix. Sorry, yeah. thank you. Uh, Henry Bendix. And in any events, Superboy, or pardon me, Superman, John Kent makes the executive decision he's going to help these asylum seekers. And he does precisely that. And he rescues them. There's again the art here is fantastic by John Timms. You know, I'm I didn't I wasn't a big fan of John Timms art in Future State. I I I I, I gotta say I'm not, I wasn't really a big fan of this more slender, angular sort of drawn John Kent. I like the more muscular version, which is his father. But this John Kent is growing on me here, and that's thanks to the art of John Timms, which I'm slowly getting accustomed to. So I, I got no problem admitting that uh, this this art is growing on me, much like Riley Rosmo's art is, <laughs> although they're very different. In any event, great ending, uh, or, uh, just great moments here where John Kent burning the handcuffs off these asylum seekers when they get to Metropolis, police are arresting them. But you see even the police giving Superman, John Kent, the benefit of the doubt, saying no restraints, uh, the young boys looking, you can see that they look up to Superman, and and ultimately, uh, when he's looking over Metropolis, he is confronted by this Jay, on, uh, this, this individual, uh, Jay Nakamura, who is that pink-haired YouTuber who is, uh, who works for people who, you know, they're, they're glad to, to have had Superboy, or Superman, John Kent intervene on their behalf and he he hints at something and this is what made me feel good he even he says he understands why sometimes John Kent may want to feel smaller than he actually is <laughs> because he was actually the same individual that John Kent uh saved uh that's saved at at the school shooting whoever was uh you know who the gunman was actually trying to kill this Jay Nakamura which which is interesting and I found it interesting that this Jay character, or the way he articulated the idea of a secret identity, that I can understand why you might want to feel smaller sometimes. <laughs> interesting way of putting it, because I, I wouldn't necessarily think that Clark Kent is smaller than Superman and such. Like, so it's an interesting perspective. But um, interesting. Really interesting. I, I like where this is headed. I I like how this this one act this one you could call it a political act an international political act it's going to have ramifications and it's clear that this island of Gomorrah which is run by President uh, Henry Bendix uh, 
President Henry Bendix, I got a t- Henry Bendix. He uh, he is of like um, he created Midnighter and Apollo with genetic experiments. Uh, interestingly enough, Henry Bendix is the one of the few characters in the DC multiverse that only has two to four counterparts in the multiverse. So he's rare. He's a genius level intellect. He's on par with Lex Luthor. He's a he's a really good choice for a villain for John Kent. So I applaud Tom Taylor for using thinking outside the box a little bit. I think this is an inspired choice for a villain. It's a very good choice. And he's going to give Luthor a run for his money. And he's got and Henry Bendix has got one up on Lex Luthor. He actually owns his own country. And uh and I must I might say that I already find Henry Bendix far more interesting than another villain who owns his own country and that's Leviathan. <laughs> who? Leviathan, Mark Shaw. Anyways, um I don't know, Jace, I, I enjoyed this. This was a positive step forward. I think that there's a lot of directions where this can go. And I, you know, I'd be nitpicking at this point. This is too early for me to prejudge this in any negative way at this point, even though admittedly I did do that in the first issue. So I got my foot in my mouth. But what'd you think? Yeah, again, I, I thought it was an improvement on the first issue, which sort of felt a little bit directionless. Um it's clear that that John's going to make his own decisions, and that's good because he does need to. Uh, both, you know, the point that Jay Nakamura makes about him wanting to be smaller and you know, having him live in his father's shadow, which goes back to the whole idea of him trying to have a secret identity, which I thought was pretty lame. To be, I, I like the idea of it. The execution was was not great, um, but yeah, I, I like what Tom Taylor's doing here in terms of. Um, you know, making John his own man where he's going to make different, different choices. Um, so yeah, putting on a, a terrible blonde wig and, and does he not own any other shirts other than his costume? Because <laughs> he, he gets dressed to go to school. He's got his costume on under his clothes, which, okay. You know, Clark used to do that at the daily planet, but he, he puts on jeans and a, a hoodie and he doesn't even put on another shirt under the hoodie. So, I mean, what if you get hot? You need to take off the hoodie, you know what I mean? Or you want to unzip it. Um, So, yeah, he's got (laughs) – he literally has no chance of keeping the secret identity because he's wearing a wig that's not secured, so it falls off immediately when he starts moving at super speed. And then, you know, as soon as some of the bullets kind of put some holes in his hoodie, you know, his costume's exposed. So not not the best idea. and I honestly didn't know how to feel because I, I do agree with you. I do think he needs a, a secret identity, but I, I don't know. It just felt like he he was he reached out to who do they say was like Oracle and and somebody else that Bruce Wayne, screen. Batman, yeah, Bruce Wayne, yeah, to 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 set up this identity for him, and he he squandered it so quickly. Um, I, I I'll be a little more forgiving in terms of you know I think even if he moved at super speed, it, it just it wouldn't have worked. There was just too many people there. Um, but what my, my thing about it is it's been shown time and time again, when Superman goes into a, a crowded place, just as sort of a preemptive thing, he's always, you know, kind of scanning around with his x-ray vision to make sure there's, you know, there's no danger around, but it's just laughing, lack of experience. But had John, when he first got there, you know, he's in the same parking lot as this, this gunman, when the gunman's in his car loading his, uh, those bullets that, that you mentioned that were, uh, yeah. I mean, Tom Taylor's making some political statements here for sure. The thoughts and prayers on etched <laughs> into the bullets, but, but if John had, had just, you know, kind of looked around a little bit more, he might've spotted this 
And then he could have stopped it before it got to the point where, okay, now the only way to stop it is to expose himself. Because, I mean, it might have, as much as I feel like it was a little clumsy, um, not necessarily what Batman and Oracle did in establishing his identity, but John, it just felt a little clumsy. And again, maybe it goes back to lack of experience that he he didn't, he wasn't, didn't take more precautions necessarily. Um, and I think a wig is always a bad, a bad choice uh, for secret <laughs> identity because it's just too hard. Like, and we see it at the end where Jay Nakamura like tried to, hey, do you want your bad wig back? Like it was, I mean, wigs are always so obvious, uh, at least to me whenever I've seen people wear them. So, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of nitpicking um, because I did enjoy it overall. And I also agree with you about sort of the cop out. Uh, I'm not sure why Tom Taylor went with that choice for why Superman chooses not to do more. Um, in, in my mind, I've always felt that the reason that Superman chooses not to, to do more and tries not to make decisions and be so heavy handed, um, you know, make decisions for other countries or other people or, or groups is because it's a slippery slope. Right. I, I think of like uh, Maestro, right. The, the uh, Marvel supervillain that the Hulk eventually turns into, you know, when you start crossing that line each time it gets easier and easier to cross it. And then the line actually moves and, you know, you get to the point where, all of a sudden, you're you know Superman's the dictator of the, of the planet, you know bene- benevolent or or not, and he's making all the decisions, and yeah. you know t- people haven't don't have their you know the agency to, to do what they want. They become complacent. All of a sudden, no Superman will protect us. Superman will do it for us, and then you know they're not the the hum- human beings as a race are not evolving. I f- I feel more like that's a, a well, well, what do you think, reason. Chase? Do you think I, I think that there's a lot of potential here for conflict between father and son moving forward? Because I don't care. Oh, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that I, I think moving forward, uh, Cal Al and John Kent here. I mean, they they could have a serious coming coming to blows if John Kent is going to become more and more proactive. I mean, well, Superman that, is not used to doing that. So, well, that that isn't um, that isn't necessarily a surprise, and it's probably something they've already talked about editorially you know they should be looking at okay when superman does come back from war world and sees the things that john has done while he's been gone and and whatnot um yeah there could be potential for big conflict there and the other part of it is is that is that why it was mentioned in infinite frontier zero about you know the potential for john kent to become a, a despot right that's right so you know i think the the seeds i think editorial dc editorials already thought about that and, and i agree with you a hundred percent so yeah overall this is a this was an improvement on on issue one I'm, I'm sort of curious john ken is definitely in my mind coming out of the shadows of his father sort of getting his own agency and becoming his own hero i do wish this had been you know 10 years from now after we got more stories of john ken as a, a younger uh, superhero learning the ropes but yeah. this is the reality that we're faced with and, and I, I said it before as soon as this first issue came out um, that now there's no going back. Uh, it, it would be really hard to put that genie back in the bottle. As far as the art goes, um, I like it most of the time. There are times where I feel like it's a little inconsistent or it's a little, it feels a little unfinished, especially in the uh, facial expressions. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm nitpicking here. Uh, I think overall the art is pr- pretty solid. And I think especially the, uh, the color work from Gabe Eltab is uh, is very good, and I agree with you 100%, Rocky, on the the Henry Bendix being an excellent choice for a villain. 
if I have any concern, it is that he is so Lex Luthor like. Um, yeah, but right down to the he, bald hair, <laughs> bald yeah, hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, he's basically the wild. He he was basically the Wildstorm universe's version of of Lex Luthor. So there there are a lot of parallels there. But I think he's different enough, and I think Tom King's a talented enough writer to Tom uh, Taylor. You mean Tom Taylor? Right. Sorry, Tom Taylor. <laughs> I do that all the time. I'm not the only one. Yeah, uh, happens happens all the time. But anyway, yeah, Tom Taylor's a talented enough writer. And um, that I think he can he can separate him. And uh, yeah, I agree. I think he's just that genius level intellect. And in a way, you know, to me, Lex Luthor will always be sort of the the evil business man, the evil tycoon that he was sort of established in the, the burn run. Um, in a way, Henry Bendix is a lot more malevolent. Uh, and I know Lex Luthor got a lot more malevolent and, and outright evil um, when – Scott Snyder turned him back into a villain after Jeff Johns, which I, you know, I love Jeff Johns, but to me that never worked or made any sense. Him trying to turn Luther into a hero and making him part of uh, the Justice League after the, um, what was it called the evil? Uh, oh my God, the crime crime syndicate. What? Yeah, the crime syndicate story forever evil forever storyline. Yeah, that right. it, that's just never worked. Never never worked for me. Yeah. Um, but certainly in Scott Snyder's uh, Justice League run. Luther was much more back to his, you know, evil ma- uh, machinations, but still, I don't think he, he's not up to the level of evil that Henry Bendix, Henry Bendix is just, um, he's a bad, bad guy. If you've ever read any of the Wildstorm um, Authority yes. or Stormwatch, I mean, he, yeah, he takes no prisoners. He, he doesn't care. He only, he's not one of those, because in a way, Lex sort of wants power for power's sake. It's all about feeding his ego. Bendix he wants to control everything. Like he wants to rule because he thinks he knows best. It's, it's, it's different motivations. And I think that's the biggest difference between the two villains. So I agree with, uh, I agree with you, Rocky. Like when I saw it was Henry Bendix, I was really excited. I was like, that is an excellent choice. Um, you know, leave Luther for, for Clark and, uh, and let's go Henry Bendix for, uh, for John Kent. That's, that's, yeah, that's a really good choice. Uh, all right, on to the next book I want to talk about. It's Icon and a Rocket, Season 1, Number 2, from writer Reginald Hudland. Pencils by Doug Braithwaite, inks by Andrew Curry, colors by Brad Anderson. Letters are by Anne World Design. We get a little bit of a uh, an origin here, uh, a little bit more backstory for Icon, which I appreciate. Uh, it's a little bit of a jump forward from the first issue where we saw Rocket basically meet Icon and... Uh, you know, appeal to to his better nature to, to get off the sidelines, to quit hiding, help clean up the neighborhood. And apparently they've been doing that for a, a while. Um, and now they're starting to, to see some consequences to that, both in terms of the neighborhood being safer and, and other people in the neighborhood feeling like they can now help. You know, we see just regular citizens uh, telling drug dealers and whatnot, hey, this is our neighborhood. Get out of here. We don't want you here. But we also see the police worried about Icon and Rocket and, and the, the, sort of the taking the law into their own hands approach, um, the vigilante approach they're taking, uh, and that's causing some problems as well. But above that, we see that uh, Icon, and this is where the sort of recap comes in, Icon has been on the radar of, of the government, the American government, before. And uh, they're they're worried about what he represents. And we meet this guy named, named Mr. Smith, uh, 
who's now going back to his previous name, which is Benedict Lord. Um, and he, he's the one that, that has faced icon in the past. Cause apparently he's, he's very, very long lived. And he gives sort of the, uh, the origin of what happened you know, we saw in the first issue about how, uh, icons ship, you know, the, the other members of his race that were killed and he crash landed very, very Superman like crash landed in a field. Um, and then when, uh, one of the slaves in the, on the plantation touched the ship. That's where he pulled the genetic information of, of what he looked like, transformed himself into a little baby, African-American baby, because the obviously the slave was African-American. Um, I still have questions about where the extra mass went, but that's neither here nor there. Comics, I guess, <laughs> uh, you know, because he's a big giant alien, goes down to a small baby. You know, matter can be neither created nor destroyed. But anyway, like I said, neither here nor there. We get the sort of uh, backstory of Lord that, that he's had uh, and run-ins he's had with um, with Icon uh, over the years. Um, the only and and it's great. It's all done really really well. And the artwork by Doug Braithwaite is is fantastic. We we learned the the true disposition of Jefferson Davis, uh, <laughs> which I thought was really really cool as well. Um, you know, dare I say I've you know it's it's. Yeah, it's it's a little political in nature, and and you would expect a book like this to be that. So I, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate it all that that Hudlin did. Yeah. Um, but my 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 one thing that, and again, this may just go to the way when you look at you know, you know right versus left, or you know however you want to look at it, conservatives versus liberals. Um, so obviously this guy's really powerful, right? Like I, I, Icon is really powerful. He's uh, he's been around for a long time, and and the government certainly uh, knows that he exists. Augustus Freeman, you know, he has his own company, he's uh, or, or his own uh, a law practice rather, and you know they're they're tell- basically coming to him saying, "Hey, we know you do this from time to time. You, you become a little more active, a little more socially proactive, and and you need to knock it off and, and keep your head down." Um, and uh, and. Uh, Augustus Icon doesn't want to do that this time. He says, "No, I'm I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing." You know, y- you know, you guys can't control me, basically. Uh, and and it, it seems to come from a place of fear, really, uh, why the government wants to control him. But my question is this: uh, as powerful as Augustus is, this guy, uh, uh, Mister Smith or Benedict Lord or whatever name he's going by now, um, he seems to be just as powerful if he if he can take on Icon uh, and just as long lived. Um, so is it just because Icon just happened to take on the, uh, sort of genetic framework of an African American that, that he's got to be controlled, but then the government's giving all this power agency to this Benedict Lord guy who seems to be almost as powerful, maybe just as powerful, maybe more powerful. We don't know. Um, but because he's a white guy, like, I, I just didn't understand that. Like why, why is Augustus Freeman a threat that you need to, so you know a problem you need to solve when benedict lord is not and in fact you're you're giving even more power to benedict lord in the in terms of um you know giving him this uh, ability to operate and giving him all these resources to go after icon to go after augustus freeman that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense to me unless it's like purposeful by hudlin to say like yeah look just because of the color of his skin which again you know, Icon is an alien that has ability to shape change. He could, he could turn into a white guy if he wanted to, right? So so what's the difference, really, when you talk about Icon versus Benedict Lord? This ben- Benedict Lord guy seems like 
much more evil. Um, yeah. Well, he even describes his powers. He says the powers that Benedict Lord has, he describes his own powers as he says, I have the unique ability to detect the presence of those from another world who would hide among us. Well, that kind of seems like a fairly useless power in a, if you're living on a world where there's all superheroes everywhere. I mean, everybody knows kind of where they are unless I suppose he just wants to filter them out. I, so I'm not really sure what his power set is other than he seems to have glowing eyes. So I, I share your questions. Like I, he's kind of a mysterious figure at this point. Yeah, it just it doesn't make sense to me. It, it you know, it, it offends my sense of of fairness, you know, of equality, which I suppose is the point. I, I think that's the whole point of the character. <laughs> um, this Benedict Lord is not a good guy um, and, and he shouldn't be being empowered by this government agency to go after Augustus Freeman and Rocket, for that matter, because they're just trying to clean up their neighborhood and, and, and trying to give people of color a chance, you know, because, um, yeah. You know, we all know that institutional racism is a thing. Uh, and so, yeah, in, in a way, this is a, a very political book. But, you know, kudos to the creative team because there's nothing overt that's said, you know, but it doesn't take a genius when you're reading it to see that the subtext is there. So uh, this I think this is becoming my favorite of the the milestone, the three milestone titles we've had so far. Hardware, uh, Static, Shock and yeah, uh, Icon and, and Rocket. This has been my favorite. And uh, again, the, the artwork, uh, pencils by Doug Braithwaite, the inks by Andrew Curry, the colors by Brad Anderson, all of it works really, really well. I mean, the, the flashback scenes, especially the, the fire uh, at the capital of the, the Confederacy um, and, and Icon walking out with that severed head of Jefferson Davis. Yeah, uh, fantastic. So I, I really, really like this. Um, yeah, fantastic. What do yeah. you think, Rock? I, uh, I'm a lover of history and I love the... Uh... I love the American Civil War. I like reading about it and I'm always uh, soaking up information about it. And I just love, th this is this is like a what if tale. And it's so cool to think of, oh, there's, this is the real history of the Civil War. And, you know, it makes sense. And I just want to give some pushback to anyone who's going to uh, say, uh, because yes, this this involves political issues, but this is not a political comic book. This is a comic book that has a good story. I mean, good Lord, he, this is, a, is about an alien who assumed the form of a black man uh, during the, uh, in, uh, in pre-Civil War America. And that was his, his experience as a human being was as a black man in pre-Civil War America. And he ultimately, initially, he had the mindset of a young Clark Kent. He fought for the rights of the oppressed. And, and for whatever reason, after this Benedict Lord killed him, he clearly wasn't dead. You can't kill Icon by stabbing him from behind. He clearly went into hiding. And that was, this is almost like, uh, it almost reminds me a little bit like Kingdom Come, where an older Superman, after, after losing, after, after, uh, losing, uh, his wife Lois with, Mag with uh, the Joker blowing up the Daily Planet and Magog, killing the Joker and, and, and humanity choosing Magog, a man who would kill over the man who wouldn't. Superman abandons humanity only to come back uh, in the future to save at the end of the kingdom come. This is Augustus Freeman. He, he abandons, he, he loses hope essentially after his experience and, and sort of his actions led to victory for the North in the, in the civil war. But all that history was covered up. Uh, Benedict Lord admitted that they, you know, they wiped out every witness, every newspaper account of the truth. The An imposter Jefferson Davis, President Jefferson Davis was brought forward all to sort of hide the, the truth of history. And meanwhile, 
this clearly had an impact on Augustus Freeman, and he went he went into hiding, and he he didn't he didn't reveal himself. And for him to come out now because of Young Rocket, this this Raquel Irvin, uh, it really says something because he's she's inspiring him in some way. He's he's seeing in her something that reminds him of the family he had that raised him in the in the in the days of the Civil War. And this is really this is really good. Interesting storytelling. I love this. This Benedict Lord. I don't know who Benedict Lord is. Maybe he's a character that exists because I don't. I never read the original uh, Icon and Rocket. But I, the questions I have, I'm wondering: Is Benedict Lord related to Maxwell Lord? <laughs> Does he have a similar power set? Maybe of mind manipulation. Probably not. I'm just sort of speculating there. I just, I really like this. I love that the involvement of the NSA, uh, that they have a relationship with him that goes back. You know, obviously, perhaps decades, perhaps uh, a century. Very interesting stuff, and I'm loving it. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely loving this. And it's, it's funny because between the Mister Miracle issue this week that we reviewed uh, in part one uh, of these uh, reviewed of, of DC Comics for the week of August twenty fourth, and this one here, I mean, these, I got to tell you, these. These black superheroes, man, they're they're kicking ass right now, and this is entertaining as hell. This feels like fresh and new. This isn't like reading a new take on Batman. This is a f- brand new, fresh and new character for me that I'm just appreciating uh, for the first time. And uh, of course, uh, this is a milestone character that's been around since at least 1996. So I'm I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, as far as I know, uh, Benedict Lord is it. This is a new character. He, he wasn't in the the first go round as far, as far as I know. Um, but I, obviously I didn't read it, you know, every single milestone issue. And even if I read it, I probably forgot cause it was so long ago, over 20 years ago, but yeah, I don't think so. I, I did Google milestone DC comics, Benedict Lord. I didn't come up with anything. So, okay. uh, I think it is a, I think it is a new character. So, uh, all right. Up to detective comics, number 1042. It's the conclusion of the jury uh, storyline from writer Mariko Tamaki. Victor Bogdanovic gives us the pencils. Daniel Enriquez and Bogdanovic are on inks. Jordi Belair does the colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. And then there is a, a Task Force Z backup uh, as well that we'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, it, this wraps up sort of the Hugh Vile storyline that's been going on uh, as as needed, I guess, because the big Fear State event is, uh, is about to start. So uh, I don't think we've seen necessarily the last of... Um, of this parasite, uh, if maybe we've seen the last of Hugh Vile, but maybe not the parasite itself, or maybe the parasite will regrow itself in the image of Hugh Vile based on the ending of the story. Uh, and I certainly expect to see more of, of Roland Worth um, and more of Deb Donovan uh, as well, for that matter. She, she may be the, the most lasting uh, legacy of, of Tamaki's run on, uh, on Detective Comics. She seems to be a, a character that's has a lot of legs to me, but I'm, I'm also curious why, uh, why Tamaki didn't just choose to go with Vicky Vale, which is, I think, interesting to me. Uh, but yet using a little bit of Vicky Vale, yeah, you know, having of, her show up here to basically as a contrast character. Yeah. Creating a little bit of a rivalry there, a healthy rivalry yeah. between the two. Yeah. Well, and the, and the other part is that Deb Donovan feels like a much more realistic character to me than than Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale to me feels like a like a almost like a an imitation of Lois Lane. Um yeah. and not doesn't really have anything you know that's unique uh 
uh, to her on her own, whereas Deb Donovan feels like a much more realistic character with foibles and idiosyncrasies and whatnot. So, exactly. Uh, but but anyway, what, what do you think of this issue, Rocky? I. I actually thought this was a really good ending to it. I, I like the fact that Hugh Vile was actually a villain that was very interesting. And even though Hugh Vile supposedly dies at the end of this issue, it, it's it's the fact that he's he's infected with this parasite that 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 does that has Batman has been infected by Hugh Vile, but it's mainly because the Penguin and Roland Worth basically took took a portion of Hugh Vile's uh, blood, I guess, and injected it into, into Batman. But it wasn't a very smart plan because as Batman later uh, later tells Huntress, it, it's sort of like almost giving him a small dose that it, Batman, because of Batman's experience in overcoming all kinds of different toxins in his career as Batman, Bat, Batman actually manages to overcome it or just resist the 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 infection of the the the, the vile the the vile virus just enough to resist it and to ultimately uh, along with the huntress defeat Hugh vile and Hugh vile ends up ultimately uh, dying. But, and, and at the end, uh, at the end, while he's on the autopsy table, uh, Hugh vile, he, you know, he's, his body starts to excrete these little eggs and these eggs, it looks like fall into the sewage system or the, or the, or the sewage system or the drainage system of Gotham. And, I'm guessing may contribute to the advancement of of Gotham in fierce of fear state that may uh, or maybe play a role in Task Force Z. I'm not sure, but I like it. I like what Tomaki did here. I mean, this uh, and I gotta say the the art here, uh, Victor Bogdanovich's art is fantastic. Jordi Belair's colors. I mean, the mood and the ambience. This is scary. Batman looks terrifying with this, like this, this, these squid-like green horrific things sticking out of his mouth with his glowing green eyes and uh, Roland Worth. I mean, he's absolutely petrified and, you know, he's afraid Batman's going to kill him, but Batman is, resists the infection long enough to, uh, to, to make sure that he just, he just in, incapacitates uh, uh, Roland Worth. But this, this was, uh, this was very well done. I, uh, Tomaki has impressed me. I've, I've enjoyed her detective comics run and, I I enjoy the uh, Deb Donovan is a, is a is a great character as you said Deb Donovan has she's a little bit she's more overweight than Vicky Vale she smokes she's got more of an attitude she swears more she's far more sarcastic she's frankly more likable <laughs> because of that maybe that says more about me than anything but <laughs> I like Deb Donovan more than Vicky Vale because like I said Vicky Vale is more of like a sort of like a Lois Lane analog and she's boring and frankly Deb Donovan is more reflective of Gotham city. She's a little bit more flawed and dark. And she's got those, like you said, those idiosyncrasies that make her being part of Gotham all the more interesting and just more, more fascinating as, as a reporter. And, um, yeah, so, so this worked. And at the end with, with Huntress, Huntress, we know has the ability to see through Hugh Vile, can see through the eyes of those infected by Hugh Vile because of her experience in being infected and overcoming the infection herself. And so, uh, that ability that Huntress has comes in handy. And you got to wonder that these eggs that he, the body of Hugh Vile excretes at the end, is there going to, are there going to be future infections that we don't know of? Is that a future plot point? Is it going to play itself out in future or in fear state or in task force Z or is that something else? But I, the fact that I'm asking these questions is a compliment to Marika Tamaki. She's, she's, she's done a good job here. And yeah, it, this, this really worked. 
What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think it did really work, and, and I'm, I continue to be pretty impressed with what Mariko Tamaki has brought to the the Batman uh, universe here. Now, there's, it's interesting, right, because for whatever reason that this character has been around for 80 years, I mean, we know fewer women worked in comics you know, back in the day, and that's obviously changed in recent years, but it's definitely the exception rather than the rule to have a female writer on, on Batman. Some people that, you know, may think that that's a bad thing, but to me, it's bringing a, a fresh perspective to Batman. Um, and we both really enjoyed the, the first arc she did about the neighborhood where it was establishing Bruce Wayne. Um, and I'm a little disappointed that we haven't gotten more Bruce Wayne in the, in the last few issues, but it, it made sense. And she explained why, um, you know, Bruce Wayne was, blamed for the death of Sarah Worth. And so to have him off the table, it, it does make sense, but I do sort of miss seeing, and, I, and I've talked about this in the past. I mean, in the era that, and, and even the era right before really, even late seventies, early eighties, there was a lot of Bruce Wayne, maybe as much Bruce Wayne as there was Batman in the stories. And then in the era I started reading kind of mid to late eighties, there at least was some Bruce Wayne. Now, nowadays it feels like there's no Bruce Wayne. It's all Batman, Batman, Batman. Uh, and with, you know, 54% of the titles being focused on Batman. You think they could find some room for some Bruce Wayne? <laughs> Where's uh, Bruce? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, come on. But uh, but that's neither here nor there. I, I think that, that Tamaki has done a, a really good job. If I had to nitpick on anything, for this story going on so long, um, the way that it, <laughs> that it sort of ends with the the parasitical creature, I, I guess, leave deciding to leave Hugh Vile and maybe go to, to – maybe he realizes – Batman may Bruce Wayne may be a better host long term, and yeah. and it leaves Hugh Vile, and then Huntress just shoots it, <laughs> and then okay that's it it's over, a little anticlimactic in in terms of how, uh you know sort of ubiquitous this this parasite has become in Gotham to just be defeated in such a relatively easy manner yeah um, or it, it might be it might be that the it's like the alien creature it it it, it had laid its eggs in Hugh Vile. And so that's why it was leaving to die. It would, maybe it would have died anyway because Hugh Vile died, and then it was through Hugh Vile's death that the eggs became fertilized and hatched yeah, that's or true. something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and, yeah, entirely possible. But but uh, again, I, I think it's the little things that Tamaki's doing in the series that that really make it work. And so if there's a beat like that that you know feels a little understated, I'm you know I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, I just with Huntress when she says. You know, I don't understand how you managed to hold it off, you know, hold off the parasite. And, and like you mentioned, well, it wasn't the – it wasn't – it was Vile's blood or, or the liquid or whatever that was extracted from Vile and then shot into me with a dart. So it wasn't kind of the, the mainline stuff that yeah, when Vile had, had – yeah, had, had directly uh, infected people. So maybe that's – why? And plus, yeah, too many near-death experiences where my brain was deprived of oxygen. I have adapted. <laughs> so we to understand that Batman's brain has adapted to being without oxygen because he's almost died so many times. I mean I, – I don't think that's how it works, but that's comic books for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I mean that's so like such a what? That is not at all how it works, but – but at the same time, that's a fantastic way to put it, right? That's that's a fantastic comic book thing to say. Yeah, Batman can can survive in 
low oxygen environments because he's almost died so many times. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a fantastic idea. Uh, and and I, I won't say any more about Deb Donovan because uh, you, you pretty much said it all. And, and like I uh, had mentioned earlier, I think she's a fantastic character. So uh, she is sort of the focus of the, the backup story. Uh, in fact, it's even titled Deb Donovan in What the Bleep is Task Force Z from writer Matthew Rosenberg, Max Rainer's The Artist, Diego Rodriguez on Colors, Rob Lee on Letters. And this is basically just a continuation of, of part one where um, Jason Todd has set her uh, on the path of, of trying to find out who is um, kind of pulling the strings on, on Mayor Nakano. What's Project Halperin? Why are these bodies disappearing from the morgue? What is this mystery that's uh, that's going on? So, um, you know, you could say Deb Donovan is is sort of the the kind of street level Vicky Vale. You know, Vicky Vale being a little more glamorous and uh, and whatnot. So it certainly suits her to you know, if Vicky Vale is going to team up with the glamour of Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Um, obviously, Jason Todd Red Hood. He's much more kind of street or, you know, gritty street level, however you want to put it. Um, and so teaming him up with, with Deb Donovan makes sense, right? It's sort of the, the uh, sort of other side of the coin of, of Vicky Vale, Bruce Wayne, you got Jason Todd, Deb Donovan. So uh, it, it, it's really working for me. I, I, I continue to be impressed with Matthew, Matthew Rosenberg. Um, he's quickly becoming probably my favorite scripter. Uh, in comics, uh, I just think he nails it with the dialogue. He brings humor. He brings realism. Uh, I mean, when you read what people are saying, the vocabulary they use, it's, that's the way people talk, at least in the world I live in. you know. Uh, and, and it goes to show how much tone and vocabulary and word choice can really set the mood for the stories you're, you're telling. You know, kind of, kind of the exact opposite of what uh, Tom King is doing in Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow where he's using very flowery language and very, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, less used words um, that have more complex meanings. And it's kind of elevating that story in a way, making us feel like it's a little more um, kind of proper in a way. Um, Matthew Rosenberg's going the other way with uh, the vocabulary here of, of Jason Todd and Donovan so that it feels much more kind of realistic. It, it lends that, uh, that realism to it. So I'm really digging this. And I think there's, I want to say that I, I, I saw something about there being a task force Z um, series coming. In fact, yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. That was in Matthew Rosenberg's uh, he, he first mentioned that in his newsletter, I think. Yeah. And then uh, as I'm saying that I'm, I'm remembering, yeah, I did look over the November solicits because I wanted to see firsthand for myself just how much Batman there was. And yeah, there's a lot. Uh, and I think, I think it's got us listed in there for issue two. I think, so I think the first issue of, of task force Z comes out in, in October and we get the second issue in November. So yeah, I'll definitely be, be picking that up. Um, Cause I think it's going to be a fun ride. Uh, so yeah, happy to see Matthew Rosenberg um, on, uh, on Jason Todd. And, and obviously I'd love to see more of him uh, on grifter as well. So uh, what do you think about the backup, Rocky? Uh, this is really good. Uh, not only, I mean, I mean, 
somebody is stealing uh, corpses from the morgue in Gotham City here, and uh, you know Red Hood needs some help figuring it out, and he goes to Deb Donovan uh, for as beca- and the reason he chooses chooses Deb Donovan over Vicky Vale is that he likes Deb Donovan's writing writing better <laughs> articles better, and Deb Donovan loves that, so that's why she listened to uh, why, why she sat down with Red Hood to begin with because she does have an ego and she does have a rivalry with Vicky Vale, and uh, she even takes advantage of one of Vicky Vale's sources at one point. Uh, in the in the in the story, and much to the chagrin of uh, of Miss Vale, and you know, um, Mayor Nagano, uh, he has a, there's a Project Halprin that's going on, which uh, has access to all of the city's resources. Somebody is using that to remove bodies from the morgue, and uh, we know that Astrid Arkham has had has has uh, died at some point. I'm not sure when she died, but she was her body's been removed. Bane is dead. Uh, we witnessed the. We, we, you and I were both w- were wondering why Manbat died. Uh, you know the death of Manbat that we reviewed in Batman: Urban Legends. Well, Manbat is going to be a member of Task Force X. So Z, pardon me. So we we now know why why they killed off Manbat because he's coming back. Sundowner is coming back. Mister Bloom, not a big fan of Mister Bloom. But uh, all these deaths, they're, they're all coming back uh, for this Task Force Z. And I really like what Rosenberg has done here because while the, ex- the, the plot line of the fact that, you know, at some point Jason Todd has also had experience being dead and he's going to be leading this task force, the fact that we got this, this ancillary character that's just a reporter, she's actually written better than Lois Lane has written 99% of the time. Uh, we talked about how on Checkmate, the about the only good thing about Bendis's Checkmate series is, as you said, Lois Lane is finally getting some agency. Well, here we have Rosenberg right out of the gate establishing a character, a reporter that is uh, could hold her own against Lois Lane as she does here against Vicky Vale. So impressive. Uh, and and I'm, I share your compliments uh, to Matthew Rosenberg here. Well done. And Max Rayner on the art just really nails it. And I'm definitely looking forward to where this takes us. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, cause yeah, we know where it's going to take us next, next month is, is fear state, but I'm really looking for, cause I don't know, I've never been a big scarecrow guy. So the fear state thing I'm, doesn't have me really excited, but kind of the aftermath and, and the vacuum that's left, as I mentioned, uh, after, because apparently Batman's going to leave Gotham city, Bruce Wayne, I should say, is going to leave Gotham city, uh, after fear state. So that, that's the story then line that I'm looking forward to. So uh, I guess we'll see. And then obviously, as we just mentioned, we're going to get a, uh, a task force Z book. So looking forward to that. Uh, all right. Up next is wonder woman, number seven seventy eight. afterworlds part nine. That's right. Nine parts. Um, and as, <laughs> as much you know as what I, I'm going to bitch about, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of have the same complaint. I mean, as much as I harken back and I've, I've complained about, you know, writing for the trade and, and why can't, you know, we get the longer form stories now. Nine parts, man, that, that's just a little too long without, because here's the thing, like when we used to get those longer form stories, especially in things like um, Chris Claremont's X-Men back in the day, where you did have plot lines that lasted nine, 10, 12 issues, you had B and C plots too, that were, you know, playing along in Wonder Woman we just have the one story. There's no other plot threads to, to kind of, you know, give us a break from this seemingly unending afterworld story. It's just gone on far, far too long. Um, so it's written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Clune, and The art is by Travis Moore. Uh, colors by Tamara Bond uh, Villain and letters are by Pat Brasso. 
Um, and, and technically a very good comic, great cover. The color work is fantastic. Uh, love Travis Moore's art. And he, he's a bit of a, a chameleon. He changes his style up a little bit here when uh, they're in the fifth dimension. It's a little bit more cartoony, becomes much more realistic and, and looks much uh, more traditionally like Travis Moore's normal line work when we get to the, what is it, the, the Paleozoic era or something, like some back in time, prehistory is what they call it. And uh, and I'm, I'm secure enough in my masculinity to say that, that Travis Moore draws a, a very good-looking Siegfried uh, here, <laughs> yeah. or Sigmund. Uh, yeah. You know, he's got he's yeah. got the abs, he's got the, the chest. Yeah. I can see uh, um, uh, any any gay guys that are big fans of Wonder Woman are going to Gonna hey, really man, what's that. Hey, hey, what do you mean Batmite is pretty hot looking too? What are you talking about there? <laughs> yeah, right? Look at that belly on uh, Batmite, man. He's, he's, yeah, he's rocking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but, but at the end of the day, it's like this is just another story in this series where I'm asking myself, what's the point? So they, they go to the Phantom Zone and then they fight their way out of the Phantom Zone. And it, it's cool um, that they're in the Phantom Zone uh, for the aspect that we get to see Zadu, you know, the classic Superman villain. And, and that's kind of cool, but yeah, ultimately they, they're able to leave um, without too much trouble. And then they end up in the, um, in the fifth dimension and we see Batmite and, and, uh, and mix his Pitalik show up. Okay. That's what you would expect from the fifth dimension. And then they end up in, in prehistory. Like I just, I, Again, I'm. What is? Why is the story taking so long? Like, I, I'm not sure. Again, I have to ask myself, what's the point of of this? To just touch on absolutely every possible reality in the the DC universe. In that case, we're going to be reading about, you know, part number three hundred and seventy eight. <laughs> you know, yeah. after after worlds, part number three hundred and seventy eight. It, it's just time to to bring this home. Um, it, it just feels like it's really dragging on at this point. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'd be surprised if you feel different, Rocky, because well, my God, man. Well, I, I'll, I will say this. Uh, first, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I think that what Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad here as co-writers, what they're trying to do is that they are trying to have some fun. And they did have some fun in this issue. Okay. Uh, I mean, they're, in fact, probably I did get a kick out of the scene where there was a bat might mixel mixes patelic. That's how I pronounce it. <laughs> and Wondermite, where they sh- where Wondermite shows up, which is sort of like a miniature version of Wonder Woman, and Mixel Pitalik says, "Is she with you?" And Bat Batmite says, "I thought she was with you." Just like in the uh, Batman v Superman movie. So, uh, I think they're trying to have fun here. And look, this is part nine. Wonder Woman started off in Valhalla, ends up on Olympus, Graveyard of the Gods, Earth Eleven, Fairyland, in the Phantom Zone, the Fifth Dimension, and ends up in prehistoric Earth. She's been through, that's, that's, I just rattled off eight different places that she's been over nine issues. And the, the goal, the, the, the purpose here was to, I'm sure that the purpose, I, I'm sure that the narrative purpose that Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad had was to have some fun with Wonder Woman, have her in all these different locations and have her just do all kinds of different things as they're chasing Janice. And Janice is the God that's been split in two and the evil side of Janice wants to find her way back to Earth Zero, where for some reason she has to be on Earth Zero to reshape the universe in her image, which seems really odd 
there's all kinds of things I don't understand about the plot. For example, if Janice wants to reshape the universe, why does this half-god Janice need to be on Earth Zero? Why doesn't she reshape the universe or the multiverse when she's in the Phantom Zone or when she's on Earth 11 or she's in Graveyard of the Gods? Because what's so special about Earth Zero? Because guess what? We know from the Omniverse, we know that Earth Zero isn't special anymore. It's no longer the center of the universe. The Elseworlds is. And Earth Omega is the center of the universe. There's two centers of the multiverse. And Earth Zero is no longer special. So why does Janus, this god, have to make her way back to Earth Zero? Also, there's there's dialogue here and there's 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 speech. Wonder Woman gives a speech to Janus that doesn't make any sense. Um she goes on and, and talking about um uh you know if if Janus wants to create a new reality. Well, didn't the cosmic gods just do that? Why are, why are they repeating the same plot point already? We have a lurking threat of Darkseid that probably wants to do the same thing. Why muddle the narrative? Why muddy the waters with a with another villain that essentially wants to do the same thing? And then, you know, Wonder Woman tries to talk her down. And Wonder Woman tells Janice... Wonder Woman accuses Janice of, of her vision being stunted by her inability to dream and of disregarding the past that's preventing her wisdom. I, uh, uh, what? What does that even mean? It's Clunan and Conrad are falling into the trap that I find a lot of writers that take on Wonder Woman generally tend to fall into and in th- in that they, they, they make Wonder Woman give a speech that ultimately lacks any degree of actual substance and actually doesn't really make any sense, but it sounds really good when you say it out loud as a platitude, but it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense in the context of the story. Janice is just an insane god that doesn't know what she's doing. The other thing that's gonna that's bothering me here, again, it's a nitpick, is that every time Janice is jumping from place to place, from Valhalla to Olympus to Earth-11 to Fairyland to the Phantom Zone to the Fifth Dimension, everyone's saying how much Janice looks like Wonder Woman. That people are, you know, that Janice looks like Wonder Woman and so people trust her and Janice is causing all this trouble. Yet every time we see Janice... She doesn't look at all like Wonder Woman. I don't know anybody that would confuse Janice with Wonder Woman if you actually look at them. They're very different looking characters. One is like one looks like a witch and one looks beautiful. So that's the other thing. I don't really see how anybody could confuse the two other than the fact that one might look like Wonder Woman with a lot of bad makeup. I mean, I, I'm, I'm laughing as I say this because I can see I had some fun on Earth 11 and I had a little bit of fun here in the fifth dimension. OK, I'm not going to lie. And I think that was the purpose of what Conrad and, and Clunan were trying to do. I just, I think I'm just, after nine issues of this, I just, I just really want this to get to an end point because I want Wonder Woman to get in the, get in the fight of Infinite Frontier and battle against Darkseid. I think that's where the story lies. And I, I view this as a distraction, but, but maybe there are others that are, are really putting all their eggs in this basket, but I don't know. I, um. But hey, we like you said, we got uh, Siegfried here showing off his chest and abs, and we'll always have that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it, it it's like when this was announced, we we thought, well, you know, they're they're taking Wonder Woman off of Earth because they want to make way for for um, for Wonder Girl, uh, for Yara Floor, and also for Nubia to perhaps show up. Well, we know there's a Nubia series coming, but right now we have no Nubia. And Wonder Girl's been underwhelming, to be honest. So, you know, yeah. taking Wonder Woman off of off of Earth Zero to me has created a vacuum. Rather than you know letting the spotlight shine on those other characters, 
it just feels like there's there is no Wonder Woman, you know. So yeah. it's been yeah, it's been it's been long enough. But let's get her back where she belongs in my mind. <laughs> uh, all right, up next we have Superman versus Lobo. Uh, it's a Black Label book. It's issue one. It's written by Tim Seeley and Sarah Beatty. Mirka Andolfo handles the art. Arif Prianto on colors. Fabia Amelia on letters. Um, I am not a big Lobo fan. I've, I've said that before. So for me, this was a bit of a chore to read. Uh, it, it, it's a big chunk of story. Get like 48 pages here. Um, and I, I thought it was okay. I, I feel like if you're a Lobo fan, you're probably going to love it. Um, I'm a Superman fan. I did not love it. Uh, and I also thought the Mirka Andolfo art was less clean than her art normally looks like. And there are a few pages where I thought the art just didn't work for me. Like Superman is on it, uh, this full page splash. Um, and it, the proportions just look so off to me and Superman's face on that page. It was a, uh, it was a little pulled me out of the story a little bit. So I don't know. I, I think again, if you're a big Lobo fan, you you probably enjoy this. Um, but for me, it was kind of a miss. Um, it just felt like, God, is this going to be over anytime soon? It felt really long to me. So, um, and, and it's not over. There's more. This is only book <laughs> one. Um, cause it did feel like it could just have been a one shot, but then at the end, uh, you know, we get, uh, next issue, what could go wrong. So that next issue, I may enjoy more kind of a, a fish out of water, um, sort of story where, uh, Superman gets sent to Lobo's home planet and, and Lobo gets sent back to Krypton. Um, it's kind of an alternate, alternate reality. Um, but I will say this, Tim Seeley and Sarah Beatty look like they're having a heck of a lot of fun writing it. So, uh, that, that does come through. Uh, but as a Lobo fan, Rocky, what'd you think? Did you enjoy this? I, I did. I, I did enjoy this. It, it, it was, it was fun. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, I forgot how much I I, I missed the phrase uh, "fetal's jizz." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fetal's jizz. I mean, good grief! I mean, your imagination can run wild. What what is fetal's jizz? Who is fetal? And should we even think about it? Uh, it's just. I mean, but that's Lobo for you. Look, for, the first question I have here uh, is actually I'm wondering why this is black label. Uh, this. You know, when I think of black label, I think of adult, I think of nudity, I think of I think of more adult sort of uh, darker storytelling or just a little bit more with an edge to it. There's nothing about this story that cries black label to me. I don't, this is a complete mislabel. Well, the well the but, other the other part of black label is it it releases the writers from any sort of continuity restrictions. Not not that there's that much right now anyway, but when when black yeah. label was first announced, um, continuity was supposedly they were trying to keep continuity pretty tight at DC. So that's the only reason I could think of. They want to be sure to label this as, Hey, this is outside of, you know, continuity, but now yeah. we know everything matters and nothing matters. So yeah. it's kind of not necessary. Well <laughs> um, but, but you know, maybe, maybe knowing, um, this creative team, Tim Seeley and Sarah Beatty, who also do money shot for vault, which is sort of this pseudo sexual comedy kind of thing that, you know, there may be some more adult themes coming that need the black label uh, title or, or or imprint. Well, I I kind I kind of wish that's the case because I mean this is otherwise this is kind of uh, it, it is kind of wasted if there isn't uh, the plot line here. I think is it, it's there's a lot of fun being had here. Superman is called out 
is actually called out to space to fix a uh, satellite array, a detection array station out near Jupiter. And while he fixes the uh, he fixes the space sail on this ship on this uh, space station, he picks they pick up a distress signal from the planet of uh, the uh, the planet called Telk, and Telk happens to be a resort planet where. Lobo is sitting there relaxing, uh, you know, he's having drinks and this, and, and there's, there's this new creature from another area of the multiverse called Newman creature, which is a sole survivor from his multiverse. And this Newman creature is sort of starts attacking or sort of eating up this planet, uh, called Telk. And Superman goes there to investigate and him and Lobo, who both happen to be sole survivors of their own planet, uh, Lobo is the sole survivor of Zarnia because he killed all the people on his planet. Superman is the sole survivor of Krypton, and of course, this Newman, the villain, is this is or this uh, this villain or wannabe. I guess he's not he's, he doesn't mean to be a villain, but this this like worm like pink looking creature uh, is also sort of the sole survivor of its own universe. Uh, there's a there's a side character called uh, Doctor Flick. <laughs> And this Dr. Flick is actually doing a thesis. Uh, she studies the behavior of, uh, of Kundians. She was also a biologist and a wildlife photographer. And her major in her university was studying the sole survivors of extinct species. So you can imagine her luck when she runs into Lobo and Superman and this creature called Newman. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's such a ridiculous amount of extraordinary coincidences. But it's funny. The dialogue, I think, is really good. I think Mirka and Dolfo's art, at times it's very off-putting. It's, it's, but it, it, it grows on you very quickly because especially with Lobo, who's just a, sort of a crazy, exaggerated character anyway. I mean, there, there's some scenes here where Lobo was attacking this Newman creature that he, he looks like he's actually punching a sphincter. I mean, actually, I mean, it just, uh, you know, fetal's jizz. What a scene. I mean, it's, um, you can have fun with this and, and, and I did have fun with it. So at, at the end of the day, Lobo is jealous of Superman because Dr. Flick, uh, makes the observation that Superman is more beloved than Lobo is. Lobo gets jealous. And so Lobo actually travels to earth to, uh, and he wants to basically, through a PR campaign, he wants to basically destroy, he wants to destroy Superman's reputation. And, and that's really what this is. And so he goes to Earth and he creates, Lobo, uh, cr uh through, <laughs> through various means creates a hashtag of no thanks to Superman all over social media. And people start complaining about, you know, there are anti-savers that pop up complaining that, you know, you know, Superman shouldn't save anybody. You should never interfere with God's plan. You know, Superman, Superman makes people sterile due to his radioactivity. And, you know, Superman doesn't even ask permission to save people. He just assumes they want to be saved. And, and all this, uh, Seeley does a good job of creating a metaphor of, of satirizing and satirizing social media in our world. And he's, he really exaggerates it for this story. And it's exemplified through the, through the narration, or I guess the commentary of this Dr. Flick. And uh, there's good dialogue here. <laughs> Lobo makes fun of Doctor Flick's name, calls her John Flick, Dick Flick, Chick Flick. I mean, it's. I mean, 
uh, I gotta admit that both both Seeley, uh, Tim Seeley, and Sarah Beatty as writers, I th- I thought they their tag team worked quite well here. I was entertained, and I gotta tell you, I'm not always a huge. I th- I find Tim Seeley to be uh, a, a consistent writer, but he rarely has been a writer that has ever knocked it out of the park for me. Uh, but this one, I think uh, him with uh, uh, with the help of Sarah Beatty, their their joint efforts have paid off well here. I'm entertained, and uh, I think if anybody wants to get a good snapshot of Lobo and his attitude, uh, and if you're just thinking whether or not to read a Lobo story, I think this would be a, is a good story to read. Let's put it this way: if you're if you're not a fan of Lobo after reading this story, then you'll never be a fan of Lobo. Let's just put it that way, and <laughs> and that's all well and good. At the end of the day, this Newman character wants to reward Lobo and Superman uh, uh, because this, because ultimately uh, it, it's in Newman's defeat where he, he, this creature comes to certain realizations. And so Newman thinks that he's doing Lobo and Superman a favor because they're both sole survivors of their planet. He figures he's going to send them back and restore back to life Krypton and Zarnia and but he mixes them up he says Superman of Zarnia and Lobo of Krypton and so next issue we're gonna have adventures of Lobo on Krypton <laughs> before it exploded and Superman on Zarnia presumably before Lobo probably killed everyone on Zarnia so more shenanigans and nonsense and violence is to follow and as crazy as as this plot is this is fun this is a really fun narrative and I'm looking forward to see where it goes. I mean, you know, again, and it makes sense that this is out of continuity. But on the surface, this, uh, I think you could probably squeeze this into continuity. But since this is Black Label, I, I'd like to see them push the envelope a little bit. I don't expect to see a bat wang or a lobo wang or anything like that. But I, I want them to push the envelope a little bit in the future issues. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if, the, you know, they get all their... Um they're sort of sexual innuendo out in money shot that they work on together. So <laughs> yeah. they're not, uh, they're not, it's not needed here, but yeah, curious, curious to see. I, I don't know if I'll, I may skim read the next one just to see. Um, Cause for me, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not a big Lobo fan, although I, I probably enjoyed this more than any other Lobo story I've read, but he's just yeah. not a character that really appeals to me. So, <laughs> uh, all right. Last book we're going to talk about wonder woman, black and gold. Uh, what number issue issue number three uh, got a few stories here we built a new world written by Janet Harvey art by Megan Levins lettered by Becca Carey espionage written by Robert Venditti art by Steve Epting lettered by Anne World Design beat the heat written by Paula Sevenbergen art by Inaka Miranda colors by Eva De La Cruz and lettered by Pratt Broso do no harm written by Nindy Okarafor Art by Jack T. Cole, lettered by Rob Lee. And finally, The Stolen Lasso of Truth, written by Amy Garcia, art by Sebastian Fumara, and lettered by Becca Carey. Um, overall, I felt like this was a pretty strong issue of this, uh, but you know, not to sound too much like a broken record, I definitely feel like these limited color um, anthologies uh, have, have sort of run their course. It's time to put them back in the box for a while. Um, for me, I thought that the, the first story, which is basically a story of, uh, of Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, We Built a New World. Um, and, and, and what you don't realize as you're reading it is it's almost a, like an in memory of uh, a memoriam for Steve Trevor because apparently he's, he's passed on. Um, so I thought that one was, was really good. It shows the relationship of Steve Trevor and Wonder Woman over the years. Plus, I thought that the art was really great. 
Um, the espionage story by Robert Venditti with art by Steve Epting was solid. Um, I mean, it feels very, I mean, when you're going to tell an uh, espionage story, Steve Epting is perfect. His, his, his style of art is perfect for that sort of story, which is kind of why, like, I, I think he was chosen to do the action comics run that where Leviathan was introduced. And I, I sort of wish that he was still doing the, the, the story. I wish he was drawing checkmate. Um, cause I think it would work better, even though there's probably no saving that story, but, um, this was a fun story with Wonder Woman just basically holding out for as long as she needed to. Um, it's also a great to- callback to the 19, uh, to Mike Skowski's run and, uh, uh, yep. Denny O'Neill's run in the 19 early 1970s uh, with uh, where, you know, Wonder Woman had the white jumpsuit and was based on Emma Peel uh, of, yep. the, of the 1960s TV show, The Avengers. I, I absolutely love this. It's perfect. I would love to have an entire Wonder Woman series based upon the white jumpsuit era, the I Ching era where she, you know, there was uh, there was uh, Chinese mysticism and the I Ching and the martial arts and and that, that Emma Peel Avengers slash sort of sensibilities of the early 1970s. I just, I absolutely love it. And uh, it's, it, this is actually done. This is, what I love about Robert Venditti here is that he honors it in a way and does it far superior than with, with great respect to Mike Sikowski and, and uh, Denny O'Neill. He does it better here <laughs> and with Steve Epting than they did it in the seventies. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I was going to say the same thing. I'd love to get this creative team on a, a regular book or at least um, like a mini series that, that <laughs> focused on that. I didn't think it worked when, when they did it with Superman, um, you know, in, in the pages of action comics, when Bendis, you know, used some funky kryptonite and, and turned Superman and Lois into basically other people and had them as agents of spiral. It just, it was too hokey and it didn't work, but um, we're not changing Wonder Woman's appearance here. She's just out of costume and, and it totally works. Um, the next story is basically about Apollo. Um, like the earth is heating up and, you know, Wonder Woman wonders if it's Apollo that's doing it. And, and it's, it's a pretty heavy handed, honestly, story about climate <laughs> change by Paula Sevenbergen. So, you know, your mileage may vary on that, whether you think it's, uh, a, you know, an appropriate story for Wonder Woman to be that sort of political and whatnot. I mean, I think climate change is a real danger. Um, but I don't necessarily think that the story really works that well. Um, but what I will say what I loved about it, and this is just a little thing, the fact that the invisible jet is like this more futuristic, because it's always been like an, been drawn as to look like either an F-15 or an F-14. Uh, right. But here it looks much more like, a, like I don't even know, like a B-44 or something, um, like or an F-44 rather, like a brand new. Um, it looks more slick here. Plane. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really did enjoy that. Yeah. Um, the next story, the do no harm is that's the, this is the one that really didn't work for me. I, I didn't really understand the point of it. Apparently there are some, there's some organism on earth that can survive in space. And there's some sort of, um, strange phenomena they call a miniature butterfly nebula, but yet it's inhabited by these little guys. Like, it, I don't know. It didn't make sense. The art, I didn't really care for the art much either. So that, that one was a miss for me, but it was the only one because I think all the others are pretty good, including the last story where Wonder Woman loses her lasso, which 
we're going to set that aside on how ludicrous it is that Wonder Woman would drop her lasso and not like go back to pick it up. And a little girl finds it and she uses it at school and, and uses it to dress up as uh, Wonder Woman for Halloween. And it's just a, it's a good heartfelt story um, with uh, art that, that suits the tone of the story. So, so overall, I thought four out of the five stories were good to great. And there was only one where I just was kind of like, eh, didn't really work for me. So overall, a pretty strong issue of uh, of Wonder Woman Black and Gold. Um, so I know you, you commented on the espionage story, Rocky. Any any other thoughts on any of the others? Well, the espionage story uh, was by far my favorite because I actually have – I don't – I've only got – I only own about uh, – maybe I own maybe 20 CGC slabs. And probably about eight of them were all Wonder Woman from that uh, from that uh, I Ching era, <laughs> and uh, varying grades. And I just I just sort of like it because it's such it's it's often reviled as one of the worst eras of Wonder Woman by by in in, in certain certain circles. But there's a there's a certain fun aspect to it that I wish we'd return to and sort of like re- revitalize that or maybe give that give that era a. a, a, a another look but in any event that was my favorite uh the the beat the heat with the apollo one which you talked about with apollo the only thing that what bothered me about that one the beat the heat is it it's it's an it's a common wonder woman trope that writers engage in routinely where gods can get away with doing whatever they want apollo can go ahead and facilitate uh, all kinds of meteorological and disasters with the weather apollo can do it apollo can create heat and Apollo just and Wonder Woman will let Apollo get away with it, but oh, then supposedly we're supposed to ignore the fact that Apollo did all this because oh, it's really well, mankind was it's it's really man's fault anyway because of climate change. Uh, no, Wonder Woman, Apollo's the villain. Kill him, end him. You snap Maxwell Lord's neck, snap Apollo's neck. Now I'm on a soapbox here, but this is the type of nonsense that I can't stand. Wonder Woman has a double standard. It's okay if a god does it, but if humanity does it, well, then that's really bad. Well, you know, why not hold Apollo accountable instead of just sitting there and having a conversation with him? That's my pet peeve. <laughs> but and it is a little bit heavy-handed. But guess what? I thought I think I think one of my criticisms of Wonder Woman in a lot of her stories is that there's a lot of heavy-handedness and a double standard with respect to her gods, and that's been reinforced through multiple tales in this black and gold series. As much as some of them are just feel-good stories. Uh, the uh, the do no harm one I don't I Frank was well I'll do respect to Jack T Cole I I have no idea what do no harm is supposed to be with uh it's it's just a pointless conversation between Vixen and and Diana about doing no harm to a, a new I guess alien species or something which Wonder Woman just almost apologizes for forgetting that and it it just again it seemed more like an exp- an uh, an an experiment in a new artistic style, as opposed to telling a story that actually had a, a, a point. Uh, the, the, there's a, I view the, with the stolen magic lasso story, the, where the young girl retrieves, you know, uh, finds Wonder Woman's magic lasso. Wonder Woman loses it in a battle and she uses it, takes it to school, takes advantage of it, gets her parents to tell the truth, other students to tell the truth. Uh, I thought it could be different. I, it didn't really have, I don't know if there was really any any lesson to be had there, other than the fact that this girl just wanted to wanted to be noticed, wanted to have some self esteem. Is again a little bit, kind of a little bit tropey, but then that's exactly what these types of stories are. I was actually more. I actually thought the artistic style was, was actually 
was actually fairly interesting. I, I actually, Bixie met, uh, pardon me, Sebastian Fiomar. Uh, I actually don't mind that artistic, that artistic style. Uh, but beyond that, uh, my favorite was the espionage tale, uh, by Robert Venditti, man. Give this guy, put him on Wonder Woman for just 12 issues. I would love that. But I, I want to give a shout out to Chase, if I might. We gave a tribute to Robson Roca. I think we would be remiss if we didn't say that in this week, there is a, there is a full page tribute to Robson Roca, that artist, in every issue that comes out this week. Uh, he died a couple weeks ago from COVID, and I we should just I just wanted to mention that because we've been sort of breezing over it. I know I've been, uh, you know, we gave a tribute I think a couple weeks ago, but it, there's a there's a wonderful tribute and a and a quote from Jim Lee paying homage to uh, Robson Rocca. So, yeah, same same, um, basically, uh, kind of dedication from Jim Lee that he that he put online when the news came out that, uh, that Robson had passed away. Um, that, that's basically the exact quote that Jim put on his Twitter and on his uh, Instagram. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that I had forgotten about his, his passing. Um, but this, this really brought it back home. And I, I, yeah, it's a great, it's a great tribute, um, showing some of his, his great art there. And yeah, it just kind of reminded me once again of, of what we all lost in terms of, uh, the incredible work that he, you know, would have created was he, you know, if he, if he had not passed away, it's, it's tragic for him and his, his family. Uh, it's just, it's really too bad. I mean, he was, he's in that same school with, you know, Miguel Mendoca and um, Steven Segovia and some of those guys that are um, uh, Daniel Sampier, uh, Jorge Jimenez um, that are uh, Bruno Redondo's another you know, they're all kind of that same generation of, uh, of Latin creators, either from Brazil or, or Spain or what have you. They're just tremendously talented um, and, and grew up in a country where, you know, English is not the, the first language. And, you know, even though they have their own uh, kind of homegrown comics, you know, Brazilian comics or, or Spanish comics or European comics or what have you, these guys grew up loving these iconic DC characters and, and having the dream to work for DC. And mm. uh, in the case of all the ones I just named, they've, they've accomplished that dream right? and they're, they're fantastic and they're very appreciative of the opportunities and they turn in absolutely great work and to lose one of them so young, is just a terrible tragedy. So uh, I'll remind everybody, get vaccinated. If you, if you're not vaccinated, uh, absolutely. Fact, as we're recording this uh, today, part two, Recorded part one Sunday, recording part two on Monday. You'll get them both on Tuesday. Uh, the FDA has given full approval here in the United States for the uh, the Pfizer vaccine. So if you're using that excuse of, uh, oh, it's just emergency use, it hasn't been fully vetted, it's now been fully vetted. They've run all the tests. It's safe after millions and millions of people have have had it, you know, tens of millions at this point. Um, and, and, you know, everybody's had two doses, or most people have had two doses, uh, if there were any terrible side effects that was going to kill people, uh, we would have seen it by now, right? It's been out for seven months. So it's safe. Go and get it. You're protecting yourself. You're protecting others. Uh, it's the right thing to do. So uh, other than that, uh, I will mention a couple of creator-owned uh, interviews this week. Like I said, um, Already Live is the one uh, for Corner Man with Ray Anthony Height and Chris Robinson. Uh, I've got a chat with David Pepos uh, that's coming up on Wednesday for his current Kickstarter for the second issue of The OZ, 
which is sort of like the Hurt Locker mixed with um, Wizard of Oz, which is uh, is absolutely spectacular. It was great to chat with David. Uh, and I may have one more creator-owned spotlight coming this week. We'll see. Uh, just had so many creators reaching out to me lately. It's kind of the – other than the new covering the new comics that are coming out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, it's really the only thing I've had time to do. Um, but I am hoping to get back on some of the other uh, regularly scheduled uh, daily uh, podcasts. But uh, you got anything else coming up, Rocky, you want to plug? Uh, well, I just want to uh, give, I do want to encourage people to, uh, contribute to the Helix Project, uh, uh Area 51, the Helix Project issue three, uh, 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 <laughs> with our good friend Dark Knight Nation, uh, you know, uh, I want, I, I still want to review issue two. I just, it's, it's just crazy with my schedule. And I actually had my, my tooth pulled on the weekend. So I had, I, there was a period of time where I, I couldn't talk, but in any event, uh, so I hope to pump out a review of issue, issue two of, uh, the Helix project, area 51, the Helix project. And I'm still slowly building up an, an all-inclusive review of infinite frontier, which, uh, I think is, uh, continues to get better. And uh, yeah, just in my continued enjoyment of the DC universe. And indie and indie titles, and I also contributed to Man Child, another independent title. You interviewed the uh, author, uh, the creator of that the other day. I contributed to Man Child uh, and uh, to Helix Project. So, uh, yeah, so great, great time to be a comic book fan, man. Yeah, definitely, tons of great titles and tons of great uh, non DC books coming out this week as well. So don't forget to tune in on Wednesday morning for our spoiler free um, new comic book. Day episode on the podcast and just a reminder if you're watching this on youtube uh you can subscribe to the uh the comic source podcast on any podcast platform or your podcast app from your phone just do a search for the comic source if you're listening to us audio only and you want to see rocky and my beautiful face or see some of the other uh, content that rocky puts out beyond the dc spotlight be sure you head over to youtube do a search for comic boom uh, that's uh, spelled just as it sounds with an exclamation point on the end give him a, a subscribe make sure you like the video ring that notification bell so you know when new content comes out from him. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Another really solid week of, uh, of DC books. And like I said, I guess you're right, Rocky. I, I think other than Superman Lobo, which I thought was just okay, the books we re, uh, reviewed in um, in this part two were, were probably um, a little bit higher quality. Uh, just slightly, not one. much. It, it yeah. was, you're right. It was, like I say, I mean, what, what a great problem to have trying to figure out if, you know, which part was slightly better than the other one. It's, it's a good time to be a DC fan, I think. Yep. Yep. Checkmate probably for me, the worst book <laughs> of the week. Um, yeah. But yeah, even, even that had, you know, some, some redeeming qualities. Uh, if I had to pick a favorite, DC book, you know, it, it, this week it's close because I really, really, almost surprisingly so, enjoyed the second issue of, of Superman, Son of Kal-El, and I thought it was a really good issue of, of action and detective, um, but I would I'd probably put Superman, Son of Kal-El second, but for me, the best issue I thought was Icon and Rocket, number two, from uh, from Reginald Hudland and Doug Braithwaite and, and company. For me, that that was uh, that I, was the best. One. I would actually, if I had to pick, it, it's a it's very close to top three. But I would put Mister Miracle, Source of Freedom, issue four, mm, followed by Icon one, and Rocket, followed by Superman, Son of Kal-El. Yeah, but it was yeah. Really Again, cool. great, great, great week. Tons of great titles. Uh, so be sure you uh, give some DC titles a chance if you're not already picking them up. And uh, as always, we want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. 
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.